Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by Earth Mama and their special line, The Healing Hearts. Women who suffered loss of a baby or postpartum mothers too. Miscarriage, stillbirth, and neonatal death leave women requiring not just emotional, but also physical support. The Healing Heartline was created to help comfort the specific physical postpartum needs of baby loss, as well as the aching hearts of grieving mamas. And we are honored to partner with them today. Like, I was so so wrapped up in planning for my birth. I was so wrapped up in having this experience that was going to be ideal and wasn't going to allow for any interventions and didn't even think for one second about what it would be like to to transition to having a baby and to being a mother. Those were things that I I didn't reserve any bandwidth for those at all. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Motherbirth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey, it's Lara with Motherbirth, and again this week we're going to be doing um, something special. It'll be me and Melissa talking about her other birth stories. For those of you who didn't have the opportunity yet, um, Melissa wrote um, recorded the story of her son Rowan and that was released on October 30th. So if you haven't tuned into that, listen to it after this episode. But today Melissa and I will be here talking about the birth of her other children. Hey Melissa. Hey. Yeah, if you listen to last week's episode, we are happy to say that this one will be a little bit lighter than that one was. Um, and it really doesn't matter if you want to listen to them both. It doesn't matter what order you listen to them in. So feel free to listen to this one first and then that one. That one is going to be episode 31, like Lara said, released last week. So um, yeah, we're, I'm excited to share the rest of my story and all of these different components that have made me a mama. As Melissa explained last week, um, how many children you have is such a hard question to answer for moms of loss. And she shared a little bit about that saying, you know, if you ask at the grocery store, she's got two kids. But if you want to hear her whole story, she um, has five. So Melissa, do you want to start with the first time you um, felt like a mom? Yeah, I think my story goes back a long way. and, And that's so much a part of where mother birth came from is just this idea that there isn't this magical or instantaneous moment where suddenly you feel like a mother or become a mother. But a lot of times we have these, these different pieces inside of us that, that feel like mothers sometimes before we ever even, you know, start the, the tangible journey of becoming a mother, or in some cases we don't feel like mothers even after we've had our kids and it kind of takes a while to sink into that. And so for me, I grew up in a really big family. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. And while in a lot of ways I didn't want my life to look like that, I still at the same time always imagined that I would have kids, that it would be pretty natural and easy for me, that, you know, motherhood would kind of be this really organic expression of myself like it was for my mother. And Again, not that I wanted to have 10 kids or to necessarily be a stay-at-home mom or any of those things, but I just it just like the ease that it kind of came to her with just felt like it would probably be genetic almost. Um, and so when I first started trying to have kids, it was a few years after being married and my husband and I kind of did the really typical like, let's wait a couple years and then a couple years passed and we just were like, well, 
it still feels like that, you know, couple years window is safe. Let's, let's wait another couple years. And eventually we got to a point where, where we said, we are going to keep saying this for forever. And it's time to just, if we want, you know, if we want to do this, it's time to just do it. It's time to take the plunge and start trying. And so we did. I got pregnant right away, which, you know, confirmed my feelings that I would be fertile like my mother and this would come easily to me. And I was about 11 weeks pregnant when I started to miscarry that first baby. And talk about this in the other episode about Rowan as well, but you know, I was, I was definitely sad. I was, you know, very, very much, you know, looking forward to having that baby. But at the same time, I just kind of accepted it as the token loss. And, and even at that time I knew that, you know, miscarriages were not uncommon. I don't think I knew exactly what the statistics were, but my own mom had had several miscarriages. And, and so even though it wasn't something she necessarily talked to me about, it was something I had been aware of and felt like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the baby that I'm going to lose. And my doctor said, go ahead and try to get pregnant again right away. We did. We got pregnant again in one try, which was just, it just kind of made it feel like one pregnancy, to be completely honest. Like when I look mm-hmm. back on that and how I felt at that time, I feel differently about it now, but how I felt at that time was that it was just kind of one extended prenatal experience. Like I I'm, I was pregnant for, you know, almost three months. I miscarried. And then like two weeks later, you know, I I ovulated and got pregnant again. And so it was a long pregnancy, but it felt just like one pregnancy and one baby to look forward to. You know, we hadn't found out the gender of of the first baby that we lost. We hadn't, you know, started really planning or really, you know, sinking into that experience of pregnancy yet. And so I would say that I did feel, to answer your question, I did feel like a mother during that time I felt, mm-hmm. I definitely felt like I had been initiated, like I had, you know, crossed that, that bridge into this new experience and this new identity. But I also, and I think this is true of everyone, but I really, my understanding of what that looked like and what that meant was so, so off base. And I, I had an easy pregnancy with, with my first, with Aiden And, you know, towards the end, of course, I was uncomfortable and all of those things. But, you know, it was not it was not the kind of it it was it was another experience that kind of corroborated this idea that like, oh, this is not that big of a deal. Like I get pregnant easily. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, I've had a healthy pregnancy. Um, You know, my mom pushed out nine babies. She had a C-section with her third and then went on to have, you know, V-backs and and had all of the rest of her babies vaginally. So I kind of just assumed that birth wouldn't be that big of a deal for me either. Um, Mm -hmm. Having said that, during my pregnancy, I was very, I was, you know, I'm a a total researcher. I'm, you know, I'm also a hippie. I was raised on a farm by, you know, by a a total lay, you know, health nut. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just, I kind of felt like there were a lot of things that I was digging deeper into than maybe some of my peers were. And not that I didn't, not that I didn't trust the medical system or, you know, the, 
the doctor that I was working with, but I just, I felt like it was natural to me to, to question things. It was natural to consider alternatives. It was natural to, you know, wonder what they meant when they said this or that. And that's a, that's another alley of the story, but I really didn't have a great relationship with the care provider that I chose. And I would say that that was sort of in conflict with the rest of my experience of pregnancy and of, you know, exploring my options and understanding them was that I, I was having this, this sort of adversarial relationship with my care provider and yet felt Mm -hmm. like I didn't have options. I felt like I didn't have a choice. And, and, and part of that is because a lot of that controversy or confrontation happened sort of later in the latter half of my pregnancy. And so I just kind of bought that lie that, oh, it's too late. You know, I I know this person, they know me, like it would, it would be difficult to change providers. It would be difficult to find someone that, that would be a good fit. You know, it's, it's too late to do that. And so I didn't. Um, Do you feel like that conflict was more on the side of like what you wanted in labor and what kind of care you wanted and what kind of birth you wanted to have? Or was it it more like things she was doing or? I would say it was, it was definitely, you know, some of it was, was the practical, the practicalities of it. Like, yes, the kind of birth experience that I wanted or the kinds of interventions that I, you know, didn't, that I hoped not to have, or the kinds of postpartum care that were important to me that she either, it was that she either clearly didn't prioritize or in some cases was actually opposed to. And then there was just like the personality piece. And I think that when it comes to choosing care providers, it's both like you have to have someone that you feel is aligned with your, you know, your goals and your values. And, and is of course also going to be an expert that's going to like tell you when (laughs) things need to look a little different than you thought they would, but you do want someone that you feel like is on your team. Yes. And then there's also the personality piece. And I would say that we were not a fit in either category. Like we had some some pretty key philosophical differences about how birth should go. And then we also had not a great personality fit. And so, I mean, you know, the the more grown up version of me now just like shakes my head thinking, why on earth did you keep moving forward with that? Mm-hmm. But I really, I really, for whatever reason, convinced myself that that's what I needed to do. And again, that really feels in conflict with the rest of my experience of pregnancy because I was, I was the person, I mean, I was the person that would like print off a, a European study that she hadn't heard about it or hadn't heard about and would take it into my next prenatal visit and like slap it down on the desk, you know? So like Mm -hmm. why didn't, why I didn't apply that sense of autonomy to the relationship itself is just kind of mind boggling to me, but, but it's, but it's a choice so many people make and, and it's a, it's a lack of awareness that so many people have. And it's again, big part of like why we have these conversations on the show is because, and why we say that to women, like you have a choice and you have a choice up until the end, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, is something that I, I think I care so much about now because of that experience. So that's a little bit, you know, a little bit of a side note, but, you know, throughout my pregnancy, despite, and maybe in some, in some ways, maybe because of my relationship with her, I felt like I did a lot of digging and I felt like I really, you know, understood my options and had fleshed out, you know, all of these different things. What I would say that I didn't do is, I didn't really accept that things might not go according to plan. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, you know, again, the the common denominator that a lot of us share. You know, it, it's it's hard to both care about how birth goes and 
hold it with an open hand. Like that's a really, really tricky balance to find. And so, you know, I was that, I was in that same conundrum that, you know, that so many women are in where you really care, like you really want it to go a certain way for your, for the health of your baby, for the, you know, the success of your, of your postpartum bonding period, for your postpartum health, for all of these different things. And, and yet like sometimes things just aren't going to go the way we want them to. And, and mm-hmm. having those expectations can really cause you to be ill-equipped to, to go with the flow when, you know, when the flow is kind of changing. So yeah. to fast forward to my, my birth with Aiden, um, I would say that it was like, you know, I could, I could write a book about how it, it forced me to face all of those things that I just talked about. And mm-hmm. the sort of the, the starting point to the whole thing is that, and I, I, mentioned we've mentioned this about this episode but um I was a few days overdue with him already and of course like every mom and especially every first time mom just so anxious to get him out and you know I was still in great health um I'd had you know a little bit of like swelling like issues in in latter pregnancy my you know my doctor was kind of keeping a close eye on my blood pressure and stuff like that but you know everything was always checking out I was in great health I was really active Mm -hmm. I was you know walking constantly I was doing all the all the things that you do at home to get labor going and not you know I was having Braxton Hicks but also it's your first baby and you just don't really know what any of it means like is this are these contractions is you know what what's really going on And so I had started having contractions during the week, I want to say on a Tuesday and, Mm -hmm. and really, really quickly it, it was like really intense pain in my lower, lower back. And my automatic assumption was, you know, that it was back labor, which of course I'd heard and read about. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was the pain really quickly, advanced beyond just being associated with the contractions themselves and being this constant, constant pain that was really, really building. And so I I was still assuming it was back labor, but we went to the hospital and, you know, I thought I was in early labor and, you know, that it was going to (laughs) be going to be pretty painful. But um, we got to the hospital and I don't even remember exactly like what and how they figured this out, but I was having contractions, you know, they, they were monitoring me and all of that. And for whatever reason, I, I think it was because it was because I had a fever. That's right. I'm, it's coming back to mm-hmm. me now. They realized that I had an infection of some kind. And so were, they were quickly able to determine that it was a kidney infection and that I had kidney stones. And backstory on that is that I have a history of chronic urinary tract you know, health dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was kind of, for me, really bad news. Like it would just felt like the the worst kind of news I could get in the sense like that. You're very pregnant, you're having pain and it's not labor. And it's not labor. And and I am having yeah. contractions, but they're, they're mm-hmm. being honest with me that like, this isn't, this isn't labor. Like this is just your uterus responding to the stuff that's happening Um, and, and for me, like, you know, when you deal with 
a chronic health condition of any kind, it doesn't matter what that is. It could be, it could be very serious. It could be minor, but that's like your thing. That's your thing that you carry, that you've been battling your whole life, that you don't, you know, you, you, you want to be rid of. You've to whatever extent, like worked hard to be rid of. And suddenly at the very end of pregnancy, this thing rears its ugly head. And I had never had kidney stones before. So that was kind of like, you know, the, the next generation of this, this thing that was, that was my issue. And I just remember feeling so defeated that, you know, I was in this situation. I had to be on antibiotics, obviously, because of the infection. Um, you know, it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't the time to be trying to like fight an infection at home. (laughs) Um, and it just, it just like, I just had to wait for the kidney stones to pass. And I remember, I remember when they did the ultrasound to, that confirmed that I had kidney stones and they had to turn me on the one side where the, the stones were. And I remember just like my whole body was convulsing in, in pain from having to lay on that side while they did the ultrasound. And it was just like, just this, just this feeling of defeat. And fortunately, you know, the, the infection, the infection cleared, the kidney stones passed, um, the contractions kind of, you know, I wasn't even really feeling them because of everything else that was going on that all kind of died out and they sent me home. So that was on a Thursday and I went home and, you know, they just basically told me like rest, you know, Mm -hmm. you've, you've had this uterine activity, like labor should be imminent. I don't remember if they had ever checked me for dilation during that visit. I assume that they did, but I, I actually don't recall. Mm -hmm. So I don't recall if I had been dilated at, you know, at any, to any level at that point. Um, I went home, you know, it's hard to rest. Like they tell you to rest, Mm -hmm. but you're anxious to get things going. You know, at that point I'm already like feeling like I've, like my labor experience has begun because I was just in the hospital for a day and a half. You know, I've, I'd been having contractions. You're feeling like, gosh, that obviously that felt like it was it. Like now I'm back home. Like, let's, let's just get this going. So I was not really resting. (laughs) And again, that's pretty typical, but I, you know, I remember that Friday night we had gone for a long walk in the evening. And I remember just like at one point, just kind of breaking down. I was walking with my husband and just kind of breaking down and saying like, is this even going to happen? And at that point we were, um, still not, I was still less than a week overdue, but you know, it's just like every day feels like a lifetime when you're, when you're at that point. And, and, you know, we're always telling women like, you know, first time moms usually go late, but it's, the truth is, is that it's so hard to go late. (laughs) It really is, Mm -hmm. especially with your first, like you just want that baby and, You just want to be done being pregnant. So Saturday in the early morning, my contractions started again and they were pretty, they were pretty hot and heavy from the start. Like I wouldn't say they were extremely intense, but they, they were really, really close together and really consistent from, from really early on. So you know, by about 11 o'clock that morning, my contractions were three minutes apart. I was, of course, you know, especially considering what had happened earlier in that week, like anxious to get to the hospital. I was having back pain again, but not in the same way. It was more, you know, associated with the contractions. And so around four o'clock that afternoon, we we finally went into the hospital. And I remember 
I remember just like patting myself on the back that I had stayed at home for eight hours, you know, labored at home for eight hours. I was like, I'm Mm -hmm. sure we're like halfway there, (laughs) you know, this is, we're going to, we just did such a great job waiting and we're going to get there and they're going to tell me I'm like six centimeters and it's just going to be, you know, it's going to be perfect. Um, and we got to the hospital, you know, they, they, um, they checked me in and things were a little bit different. That was, you know, almost nine years ago, even nine years ago, I think there was a little bit less like, yeah, you should just stay at home for as long as possible. I think we're a little bit better about that these days than even nine years ago. But I think there was also like my earlier in the week history and they were, they admitted me even though unfortunately I was only three centimeters at that time. Um, and you know, it, it's like hindsight is twenty twenty. I wish I had stayed home longer, you know, but I truly like, it's like, I don't also don't know if I, if I would have known to do it differently. Like my contractions are three minutes apart and they had been for hours, you know, like you would just, it just felt like, I'm sure this is, I'm sure this is progressing quickly. Like <laughs> it's time to, yeah, go, I think it's know? impossible in those situations, especially when you like you said it's eight hours at home is is a is like by a measuring of time a long time to labor at home and I think it's so difficult when like you're saying you know maybe it was the culture of the hospital maybe it was because it was nine years ago maybe it was because you had had health concerns in the past yeah you know but once once that decision is made for you to stay you can't go back you yeah, can't go back no going and, back yeah 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 Yeah. And, and I don't like think that they made the wrong call in admitting me either. I mean, you know, there were, there were those other factors and that, you know, it was, it was a few years ago. And I think that, I think that I just, I wish that I had had, I guess I really wish I'd had like a different week leading up to that, you know, where I hadn't like already been in the hospital for a day and a half and gotten, you know, no sleep and then gone home and not, not obeyed their instructions to actually rest, you know? So like so many, like so many moms, by the time you go into labor, there's a good chance you're not sleeping that well at the end for one reason or another, either you're excited and having a hard time, like, you know, unamping yourself up or you're in really, really uncomfortable and actually physically can't sleep. Like there are so many factors that contribute to that. And so, by the time I, by the time I got to the hospital, I was already tired. And so I labored through that first night and, you know, I, I was, I was checked at various points. I don't, I don't remember how far apart or how many times, but, um, I was checked at various points and was really just not progressing. Um, you know, I think at one point I had gotten to like, they were like four like ish, you know, like they were, they were being generous with, with their four. And it was like just incredibly discouraging because at that point I'd been at the hospital for hours and to, and to have only, only dilated another centimeter was just so incredibly discouraging. And, and I was already exhausted and, you know, I was having back labor. Another, another factor in all of that was that and we didn't know this until later on, but my son was posterior while I was laboring. And so, you know, that obviously contributes to back labor and can, can contribute to, you know, to slow or 
you know, slow progress or failure to progress. And again, like you just look back on these situations when you're younger, especially if you've had subsequent births and you wonder about all the different things that might have been, might have made a difference. And, and the truth is you don't, you'll never know, like eight things could have been different and, you know, maybe none of them would have made a difference or there one of them would have, and you wouldn't know which one. So it's hard to say, but I will say, and it's not that I blame my doctor for that, but I, I felt afterwards, I felt so gypped by that by the realization that my son was posterior and nobody knew that. Like nobody checked on that. Nobody had even an inkling. Like it was never even suggested that, you know, maybe he was posterior. Um, and in my subsequent pregnancies that has been like at the forefront and, and maybe even partly because I have like, that's my story. And I have come into those relationships and into those conversations with this history of like, I had a posterior, you know, labor and, and birth. And it was, it was really difficult. And so maybe those care providers have been even extra vigilant in, you know, their, their attention to positioning, but it's, that has been so, so freeing for me. And so, wonderful for me to have those experiences of really being taught how to, how to understand, you know, the positioning of my, of my baby and kind of knowing when they move and knowing, knowing how to help them be in an advantageous position and and all of that. And so it's just, you know, it's another thing looking back that I'm like, I wish that could have been different, you know? And, and the, the truth is, is that you can't always turn a posterior baby. So knowing may not have changed anything, but I think it would have just felt like, just like anything in birth, like feeling like you have the information and like you're able to, you're able to like make choices based on that information. Even if it's something you can't do anything about, just like having the information is, is so valuable, you know, feeling like you've been given, given what you need to understand your situation and to understand how things are happening the way they are. And that really felt lacking in that birth experience to me. So today's episode is brought to you by Earth Mama and their Healing Hearts line of baby loss comfort gifts. They have put together this incredible resource that allows women to both acknowledge loss and meet physical needs, which is something that just doesn't exist in in this space. They also offer one of the most extensive resource lists that is available online for grieving parents, and they really wanted to offer something to the community that doesn't cost anything. They see it as holding their arms out to their customers and others who have had loss. And whether you're weaning from baby loss or just have excess and unwanted breast milk, they have this amazing tea called No More Milk Tea that has got different herbs in it that really helps to reduce production. which is something that I used in my after my loss with Rowan. They also have this beautiful remembering baby journal that you can use as a way to remember babies, and they have a lot of different um, sentimental gifts that you can you can get for someone who has experienced loss as well. So we just love the gap that they're filling in this world, allowing a safe space for people to grieve without denying that grief is all that's required of you. So you can check out Healing Hearts at motherbirth.co slash healing hearts, where you'll be able to see the full line of products that they offer for mamas who've experienced loss. Yeah, even feeling like even if you don't have the information, the people who are taking care of you do and are and are actively trying to kind of facilitate. Yeah, 
as if uh, almost like oh well you know i we can't tell for sure you know i've had this conversation so many right. times um with moms or like, we can't tell for sure obviously but uh, you know just kind of the way your labor is presenting and the things that you're feeling you know i feel like your baby could possibly be posterior and here's some things that we can do about right. that and i feel like that can be really empowering especially for women who've read about posterior babies and back labor and are like oh no that's happening to me yeah. and in reality it's like well no actually it's it's you know there are things that we can try right. and there's power in that. Yeah. yeah. And again, like you could try everything and maybe you don't turn the posterior baby, but just feeling mm-hmm. like you were supported in the opportunity to try, it makes such a huge difference. And, and, and that this isn't to suggest that we didn't try anything during my labor because I certainly had some great nurses that were suggesting different, you know, position changes for me while laboring. And I actually mm-hmm. had a wonderful doula who was there providing me with really great, you know, physical and emotional support. I also had my husband who of course knew nothing about birth, but he was emotionally very present and very wonderful. And I also had my mom. So that's another part of the story is that my mom was there and my mom has had 10 babies. And I didn't know before I had kids, whether I would want my mom to be there or not during labor. I would say once I was pregnant, I pretty much instantly knew that I did. And she lives in Northern Canada and, you know, we talked about this a little bit in my other episode as well, but, you know, have, getting her to a birth is sort of like, is that going to work out? And, and it did. My mom was, my mom got there, um, I think late, later in the day on Saturday or early Sunday morning. So I'd already been in the hospital for a few hours when she got there, she came and joined us and having her there was, was monumental. It really was. She was, she was just a really, she was a rock and a really safe place. And there were so many things that happened in that birth that she really helped me feel confident in and feel like it was going to be okay. And I mean, there were situations for sure that it's not even like that she had necessarily been through that exact thing and knew what to do. She just, she just had this, I think the the presence that any really experienced birth worker that has that very like calming, calming demeanor. I think what they bring Mm -hmm. is just this sense that like, it's going to be okay. Like this is, this is normal. You can do this. Yes. It's very hard, but it, it's going to be okay. And so I would say that's what she brought more than a sense of like, Oh, I know what to do now or next more just this, like, it's going to be okay. And so you know, honestly, the, t- the timelines are, are foggy. Um, I don't remember, you know, what time it was, but it was later in the day on Sunday. And I had had um, earlier in that day, they had given me fentanyl for, for pain relief. At, probably at some point in the early afternoon, I was just like, just the back pain was so bad. And so I had that I would say that that did actually quite little to to alleviate that pain. And it also just made mm-hmm. me feel really, really wonky. And so I was like, no, no, no. You know, I didn't want any more of that. Um, and, the, and also during, at some point during the day on Sunday, and I, again, I don't remember exactly when, it was pretty evident that I was not progressing. You know, I'd come in at a three- I think that I got to about a four and a half over the course of, you know, almost close to 20 hours. 
And Mm -hmm. so they, they had, you know, we had talked about it on and off throughout the day, but, you know, they were strongly suggesting that we use Pitocin to, to really take my contractions to the next level because I was having regular intense contractions, but they were just not, they were just not doing the job. And so that was one of those things that, of course, in my birth plan, I had said, you know, absolutely not, no Pitocin. I, you know, I don't want that for induction or augmentation. And, you know, when you've, when you've just been stuck for so long, you realize like we've, we've got to do something. And yeah. And so I remember that was one of those moments that my mom really helped me get through. It, it was a hard pill for me to swallow. Like that wasn't something I wanted to, wanted to accept. And, and I did, I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And the, the Pitocin was, it was exactly what people say it is. Like it takes it to a different level. And the only word I really have to describe it is unnatural. Like imagine the, you know, the, the pain and intensity of a contraction, but add to it the sort of mechanical, like almost external force. And, you know, because, you know, when your uterus contracts, it, it, it's a, it's a very intense feeling but it has this at least in my experience and everyone's experience is different but in my experience it has this very internal sort of self-guided feeling to it and the pitocin contractions felt like someone some some mechanical device was squeezing my uterus for me it was just like just Mm -hmm. so so intense and within a few hours of that I was still, still struggling to progress, um, despite, despite the Pitocin and was at the point of just, you know, utter exhaustion. This was, was late, late Sunday. And I'm not sure what time, but almost into Monday. I was gonna say almost into Monday. Yeah, probably getting close to Monday. And, and how I can sort of ascertain that is that I, I remember I can kind of back it out from the end. So, um, at that point, you know, they, the, the team there, the nurses and, you know, my, my OB had, had popped in at one point and they really recommended like, you need to get some rest. Like your uterus, you are exhausted. Your uterus is clearly exhausted. They were, you know, hypothesizing that my uterus may really just be struggling to do its work because it had also been having contractions earlier in the week when I had the kidney stones and it was just kind of like done, you know? So mm-hmm. again, another hard pill for me to swallow. It was not something I had wanted to consider at all, but you know, they, they really were recommending the epidural. And so we went back and forth and I talked to my mom and I remember my mom at one point just kind of holding my hand and she she just looked at me and she said in the most compassionate way, she just said, I really think you need to rest. <laughs> and I can just cry thinking about that because like my mom has you know, she's never had an epidural. She, you know, she is, she is just a rock. And, and in so many ways, again, not that I, not that I wanted or needed to be exactly like her, but I just had this feeling like, well, if you could do it 10 times, like I'm sure I can do this. And, and I think maybe in some way I wanted to prove myself to her as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely that kind of person. Like I'm, I, that's just like, I totally, I want to prove myself to myself, to, to the people in my life. Like I, I can't get away from that, you know? And Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have articulated that about myself that I wanted to prove 
myself to her, but I think on some level I did. And when she said that to me, she said, I just think you need to get some rest. It was like the most freeing thing. I mean, it was like, if my mom thinks I need to get some rest, like I'm going to get some rest. I must really need it, you know? Um, and so we got, I got the epidural getting it in itself was, I remember pretty, I mean, you know, they, they stab you in your spine. It's not comfortable, but you know, it was uneventful. (laughs) Um, and, and it, it totally worked. Like I was, I was, you know, felt pretty much nothing. I remember, um, I remember like touching my legs early on and not being able to feel them and realizing like, that's going to freak me out. I'm just not going to touch my legs. And, and then getting some sleep and that would have been, yeah, that would have been at that point, like early Monday morning, like, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe one or 2am or something. And so I slept for a few hours, which was, which was really wonderful. And one of the things that we had talked about when I agreed to the epidural was that I really wanted to let it wear off before pushing because, you know, I had, I had read and, and we, and we had talked about with, you know, with my team there as well, that, you know, it can be advantageous to, to allow that to wear off so that you still have some sensation of pushing and can kind of work with that, you know, that natural impulse. And so I, I really wanted if that was possible timing wise to, to attempt that. And so fortunately I still had plenty of time. (laughs) Um, so I slept for a few hours, got some rest when I woke up, you know, in the early morning, they, they checked me again and I had progressed for me really significantly. And I think I was like close to seven centimeters at that point, which, you know, still felt defeating. And like, are you kidding me? Like, how am I not a nine or a 10? after, you know, after all of this time, but it was big progress for me. Like I had been stuck between three and four centimeters for, you know, over 24 hours. And so it was, you know, they all felt great about it. You know, my, my nurses were like, this is great. Like, you know, your contractions are looking great. Baby's doing fine. You know, you've gotten some rest, like you progressed while you were sleeping. Let's let that epidural wear off. Like, you know, transition's coming. It's, it's going to be hard work, but, but, you know, we're, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that that's exactly what happened. You know, we, they basically, you know, shut, shut the, the drip off. And I, I actually don't remember if I was still, I think I was still on Pitocin during those hours I was sleeping. I don't remember at what point mm-hmm. the Pitocin got turned off. If it, if it was turned off before the epidural after at the same time, I don't really remember. I just remember that we, we turned the epidural off and, I continued to have contractions. I, you know, it was, it was still slow going. It still took me, it still took me a few hours to, to, to get to complete. But in the early afternoon, right around like, um, 1230, I was finally ready. And from the time I started pushing till the time he was born, it was almost four hours. (laughs) He was born at 417 and, that was the 56 hour mark from when my labor had started on Saturday morning. And pushing was like the, the biggest dichotomy I've experienced in my life. Cause I experienced it at this, as this incredibly powerful transcendent experience. And yet it took mm-hmm. a really long time and I was 
you know, absolutely exhausted. I remember just my, my husband and, and my mom and the nurses like holding me up and helping me onto the squat bar while I pushed and then laying back and holding me up on the squat bar and laying back while I pushed. And again and again for hours we did that. And he was making very slow progress. And that's when they discovered that he was posterior. And mm-hmm. my OB had come in by that point and she was explaining that she had had success, you know, actually manually turning a posterior baby before and that she, you know, wanted to try that. And so we, of course, said, you know, whatever needs to happen. Fortunately, during this whole time, you know, he was doing well. His heart rate was fine. He was he was tolerating he was tolerating the extended pushing. Um, and so she did. She actually turned him and then he turned back and she tried turning him again. <laughs> and she was, you know, essentially able to turn him. But at the very end, she was like had her hand inside of me and was holding him in this you know, in face down so that he, as he was coming out, um, but he was actually delivered, um, with vacuum. That's how he was born in the very end. So, you know, it was, it was a pretty traumatic birth in that sense, like, you know, between pushing for so long, having the instrumental delivery, and then I had a really, really bad tear, very challenging to deal with afterwards. Um, and it was, it was all kind of felt like it just fit with the rest of it. Like just this, it, it just felt like a struggle. Like there wasn't any point other than the moments during pushing where I just felt like I was like on top of, on top of the world. There wasn't really any point that didn't just feel like a struggle, like too much of a struggle, you know? Yeah. And and yet he was born and, you know, they, they put him on me. It was, it was like everything that you, in that moment, everything that you think it will be, you know? And, and I was, I was absolutely exhausted. Aiden was really pretty out of it because he had kind of had the works, you know, um, on all fronts. And, it was, you know, it was, it quickly, quickly turned into a postpartum experience that I would say even while we were still in the hospital, it was already like, how are we going to do this? You know, um, it was, it was a, it was a, a really big, a really big shock to my system almost immediately after that, like initial glowy, you know, couple of hours. Um, so after you delivered and you said you had, um, a pretty tough laceration, so you had a repair and how long did you guys stay in the hospital? We stayed in the hospital for longer than typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because I had, even though like there was nothing there was nothing wrong with Aiden right up until the time he was born. But after he was born, they felt like there were, and you know, it's like, it's, it's too blurry. I wish I had written it all down then like I have with, you know, with other, with my birth since then. But there, there were some signs of infection that they were, that they were nervous about. Um, 
And, and so I ended up being on antibiotics again, and I had been on antibiotics earlier in the week as well. So we stayed for an extra couple of days because they wanted to, to monitor us on the antibiotics and, <laughs> and just make sure that we were totally good to go. So I would say we were there for almost 72 hours before we went home, which we were, of course, anxious to leave. But I also remember feeling like, I don't know. I also don't want to go home. How will we do this at home by ourselves? And my mom was there and she was planning to stay afterwards, but I could already, I already had that feeling of like, like, can't they just take my baby to the nursery for a few hours? And, and I don't want to come across at all. Like that's, you know, like that's wrong to do or something, but I really felt that in the sense of like, I don't know what to do with this baby. Like, not just like I need a couple hours of sleep, but like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Like, please help me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we went home a little, like between two and three days later and my mom was there for the first, um, she stayed for almost two weeks and thank, thank God that she did. It was really, really wonderful that she did, you know, and those first couple of weeks are the weeks where, you know, the baby's pretty much just sleeping and, you know, you're figuring out breastfeeding, breastfeeding got off to a reasonable start. I don't really recall any major issues with actually initiating breastfeeding. Um, We had just, you know, a pretty, pretty peaceful first couple of weeks with my mom waiting on me hand and foot. You know, she would bring me food in bed and, you know, take Aiden for a couple hours in the night and just took really, really good care of me. Everyone should have my mom come and take care of them after they have a baby. She'll stock your freezer for like three years and you know, she's, she's pretty great at that. So we had, we had a pretty, pretty great initial transition to home. So after your mom had been there really kind of taking care of you and you said breastfeeding was going pretty well. Um, when do you feel like, you know, maybe after your mom left, when do you start kind of settling into just your reality of being at home with your baby? Definitely when she left, I remember her saying to me, she didn't have to go for any specific reason, but I remember her saying, it's time for me to go. And I was begging her not to leave. And she said, it's time for you to learn to do this on your own. And I, and I could see what she was saying, like that made sense, practically speaking, but I just felt so terrified to be on my own without her. And the other component at that time was that my husband, who he, he was incredible during labor, and you know he was definitely we were we were like-minded partners in this decision to have a kid, but he really, really strongly, strongly reacted to having Aiden in a way that was not not great for you know, for our family dynamic. And, you know, he, it's not that he disappeared or wasn't there at all, but he just really kind of like sunk into his work, you know, his social life Mm -hmm. was really an escape for him. And, and it just really felt like I was home alone with a baby, which I feel like I now firmly believe that that's like unhealthy, (laughs) you know, like people can't do that. You can't be home alone with a baby all day. You cannot, it's not something we're meant to do. It's not how society or families or communities were designed. Like this is not what people do. And I mean, it is what we do now, but it's not how it was meant to be. And so I think 
when you add together that piece of it with the actual reality of being a postpartum mom with a a pretty significant recovery. You know, I'd had a a really, really bad tear. I also had some complications after he was born where I, you know, just, I was just in such constant pain in, in my pelvic floor and, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And I, I accepted, I accepted that I was in pain because it felt like that's that's reasonable that I would be in pain after what I've just gone through, but it just felt like it shouldn't mm-hmm. be getting worse and worse. And so I'd gone back to my doctor twice to say like this, you know, I just don't feel right. And they would say, no, everything's fine. You know, you're, you're just, it's just, you had, you had a really bad tear, you know, and a really, really long, difficult delivery. So, you know, just give it some time. And the third time yeah. I went back, I was insistent. I was very, very sure that something was not right. And they, did a a proper internal exam and discovered that they'd left a big, big wad of gauze inside of me that was just, you know, starting to, to rot and cause, so cause infection. It's still so crazy to like hear out loud. I know it just saying it like, I mean, it was crazy at the time. Like I knew it was crazy. I knew it was rare and crazy and so insane. But now knowing what I know, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't like, I can't believe. And I, I was, I was a badass back then too. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they basically, I didn't have any hospital bills. I'll put it that way, but I, I still just yeah. can't believe that it even happened. So, you know, once that was resolved, like my physical recovery started to, to accelerate a little bit, but it was just, there were just so many factors that felt like they were kind of working against me. And, and I didn't know it at the time and I was never, ever diagnosed with anything. But, you know, looking back with what I know now, I absolutely had significant postpartum anxiety. And I think it just, it was, there were so many different factors playing into that. And so much of it was my expectations versus the reality. I remember always thinking, like, I know, I know how to do this. I'm, I'm the oldest of 10 kids. Like I have changed, I've changed more diapers as in my youth than I would ever change of my own children's. Like I would have to have mm-hmm. six children before I would change as many diapers that I, as I had already changed in my life. You know, I felt like I, from the practical side, I felt like I knew exactly what I was doing. And so I had not in, on really any level, I had not prepared for or even acknowledge the emotional or or identity transition that becoming a mother was going to be. And so when yeah. you add to that a, a physical a challenging physical recovery to a baby that was pretty angry, he would you know he had a lot of digestive issues and colic and he was he was you know mad a lot of the time plus a husband that was really not showing up in the way I needed him to. It was just a disaster and I was an anxious freaking mess. I spent every day obsessing over, you know, the latest, you know, runny nose or or reflux episode or how to get him to sleep. You know, there were so many things that every like the little minute details that I would try to control that weren't even controllable because it's a baby and you don't control babies, but I definitely tried to control my baby and I think uh, you know we'll we'll talk about this another time but you know having another baby now and just realizing what it's like to follow a baby's lead instead of trying to control them is such an incredibly different experience than than that 
first postpartum period of mine, it mm-hmm. was just really, really debilitating. Like I truly did not trust that things would be okay. And everything that happened, I would make all these assumptions about the future. You know, my baby's not sleeping. He'll never sleep. My baby has reflux. He will, you know, have, he's going to end up with, you know, major gastrointestinal damage that's permanent. You know, he, Mm -hmm. he has diarrhea. He's going to, you know, I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept that like he has diarrhea and a sore chapped ass and I'm sure it won't be like this forever. Like what, you know, what do we need to do to Mm -hmm. make him comfortable? It was, it was this huge existential, you know, futuristic crisis that, that I couldn't escape. And so I, I really spiraled in that time. And, and honestly, it took me years, you know, that initial time, those, you know, those first few months to probably the first year were obviously the most intense because you're really, really, that that's when you're also dealing with the sleeplessness and just the adjustment and the hormones and all of that. But I didn't, I didn't have that experience of, you know, a few months down the road, suddenly I'm like, oh, I feel different now. Like I feel a little more balanced, a little more, a little more capable. That moment really didn't come for me. It just kind of, it just kind of kept going and kept mounting and, and really stayed with me through, you know, through Aiden's early years of childhood, which I just know what knowing what I know now, I know if I had if I had acknowledged if I'd had the tools and the support to realize what was happening at that time, I could have addressed it. And it doesn't mean it would have all gone away magically that I would never have like been anxious or struggled in any way or that it would have, you know, dissipated 100 percent by three months or six months or nine months or a year. But I know that it could have looked so different, that it could have been so much more of a you know, of a, of a challenge that we faced, but that we, that we moved through and we moved past and we were able to kind of take those experiences and those tools with us into our relationship as we move forward. And it's, it's tragic to me that, that, that didn't happen, you know? And, you know, I think what I want to ask is a little bit, how, when did you kind of come to identifying those things and maybe kind of naming also what you've been talking about with Chase? Do you feel like at what point postpartum or further into mothering motherhood did you realize, wow, these things were really kind of chasms or this was really harmful to me? Like at what stage are you at where you're kind of having this reflection? I would say that I always knew that things were not great, like that we just had, we were running hot and it was not like the the engine was never, ever getting to cool off. I, I mean, I was always aware of that. I would say that the earliest realizations of what might be contributing to that were definitely the component with my husband. And, and around a year, we were really able to kind of start moving towards like healing and growth in that way. I would honestly say that it wasn't until Rowan was born um, which is the story we told in the last episode, episode 31. It wasn't until Rowan was, was born and, and, you know, and died that we, that I really was able to look back and, and see my postpartum period with Aiden as, as that something was like actually off in me, you know, that there was something mm-hmm. beyond just like, this is a difficult transition or I don't have as much support as I, you know, ideally would need or want and, th- and even though those things were true, that there was, there was more going on. And, and, you know, over the years as I've 
moved more and more into this work with with women and with mothers and and you know around birth obviously i have so much more training and knowledge now about postpartum mood disorders and and the impact that those have on on our transitions to motherhood and and all the classic signs were there you know i had postpartum anxiety and and i just had no means of knowing that at the time i mean again like i was so so wrapped up in planning for my birth. I was so wrapped up in having this experience that was going to be ideal and wasn't going to allow for any interventions and didn't even think for one second about what it would be like to, to transition to having a baby and to being a mother. Those weren't things that I, I didn't reserve any bandwidth for those at all. I think that's really common. We talk about that with women as they share on the story about you kind of front load your expectations. You think in pregnancy, I have this timing where I can kind of make decisions. I can change, you know, I can be active. I can eat well. I can do prenatal yoga. I can get a doula. I can have all of these resources at my fingertips so that I have this outcome that I want. Like you shared at the beginning of your story, like I didn't really plan for it not to go that way. And then you go home and there's the chasm where the plan is not in place. The expectations are unrealistic. Yep. The support is not there. And you realize, you know, you've spent all this maybe time, money, energy, whatever it is for you on this nine month experience and not enough on this next lifetime of experience. And- right. Well, we've had so many people on the show that have talked about it just like that. Like pregnancy is a season. Birth is an event. Motherhood is the rest of your life. And and, th- and pregnancy and birth are so important and they have such a big impact on how our motherhood journey goes. And I, I definitely believe that about my my birth with Aiden that, you know, that 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 really challenging and sort of traumatic on on many levels birth that it it was a contributor to the my transition to motherhood. But it was just one of many, many components. It was just one piece. And, you know, and I've really been able to to move, you know, through that and, and, and past that in healing in my life as I've, as I've processed that birth and processed that time in my life. And I've been able to, to see so much growth and amazing, amazing progress in my relationship with Aiden. So I know that it is something that it doesn't have to define who we are forever, but man, it really, really, really can screw you up. It really can. Yeah, I feel like, you know, in some ways as your friend, I want to say, don't be so hard on yourself. It wasn't that bad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just because I want you to be off the hook. You yeah, know, I want yeah. you to to feel that, you know, I don't want I don't want anyone in my life to feel like they, you know, look back and think, man, I wish I could change things. Yeah. Um, however, you know, we talk a lot about and I I feel very strongly as a provider that those are chances for empowerment yep. and those chances for empowerment move us into our next experience in life. Like you said, as much as it was this thing that you look back on and, and, you know, maybe there are words like traumatic or difficult or things I would change, but the reality is it's this also a contributing factor to the evolution of who you are and the things about you that now you carry into motherhood that are assets that are, um, extremely valuable and also gifts that you Mm -hmm. give to your son, which is, I've ch- I choose not to live in these ruts of anxiety. I choose not to um, live without support. I choose not to 
constantly put myself last, you know, and I think those are all things about you and other other moms that I know who've gone through very difficult transitions to motherhood, that if they're able to identify and heal and grieve and move forward, that that empowerment is unequaled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I hope that I think that's why we do this. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful that the women listening today, you know, if you're listening and you feel like this is your story, you feel like things didn't go well or things just weren't, you know, like Melissa said, I thought it would be genetically, you know, I would just be genetically gifted to have this experience and you feel like it didn't happen. It does not mean that you have failed or that you are now inept or unqualified. Um, If anything, you know, if you're listening and you feel those things, like reach out, find people to tell the story to, because as you tell it, you get to see the things that you did well. And you know, I think that's such a huge passion of our, in our motivation of having this space for women. Yeah. And having that experience doesn't mean that growth and change is impossible. Like you can be at your absolute lowest and feel like this, this experience of having, of being a mother, of having a baby, my relationship with this child, whatever that piece is, is, is the lowest it could possibly be. And, and that feels like a permanent situation that feels like a permanent place and the truth is is it just isn't and I have I have felt like I'm at the absolute absolute lowest that I could be when it comes to the you know the relationship with my child the bonding all of that I have felt like it's it's too late like that's not going to happen for me it's not going to happen for us and and nothing has been less true than that yeah absolutely So we are going to wrap this one up since it's already a long conversation and we will come back and tell the story of my third birth with Etni another time. So hopefully you guys can bear with another conversation about my births. (laughs) Um, But we definitely want to share that story because Etni was my rainbow baby that was born after Rowan and she had a beautiful home birth. And there's a lot to, a lot to talk about there in, in the redemption and beauty of that story. So we will, we'll share that another time and probably get a little bit more into, into my postpartum experiences overall. So Thanks everyone for listening and for making space for all of these stories and especially for my story this month. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook where we have all kinds of behind the scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Laura and Melissa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period.